Welcome to the Carolinas, where serial killers, abductions, and mysterious circumstances are abundant. Join me, Tiffany, and my co-host Sam, two moms, as we cover local true crime cases that will leave you wanting more. Tune in every weekend for our new episodes where we rotate between North Carolina and South Carolina true crime cases. Find us on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, and follow us on our social media. We're on Instagram at Cola City Crime, and you can find our Facebook page by searching our name, Cola City Crime. you is that the reason why you moved to florida I moved to florida to get out of the weather in ohio oh okay yeah, that <laughs> so, makes sense. Um, but uh, i had been coming down to florida for years i had family down in st pete and uh i had been traveling to death row in florida uh california ohio all over anyway so uh we knew that uh my wife and i knew that this is where we wanted to come and uh finish out our careers. Uh, she's been a, a school teacher for 31 years, so uh, we just wanted to uh, be closer to the to the Gulf. Yeah, don't blame me. I haven't been to Florida, oh, when I was like 12 years old, so 20, 21 years ago. I've never been. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I agree with you with the weather, because like here, it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's great uh, uh, most of the year, but come summertime, it's like Cambodia hot. So that's the downside. <laughs> oh yeah, um, she's actually reading your book right now. I I I have read it, the Watch Me Die. Um, so a lot of your research in that is mostly from Ohio, correct? Correct. So that one there is what got me started on this journey. Um, with Ohio's death row because this is not something I set out to, to do. Uh, normally, uh, when you teach at the university level, they like you to publish. So as I was teaching a lot of the uh, academic classes in the field of psychology, such as social psychology, uh, abnormal psychology, things of that nature, some of the most heated topics would come up, such as, um, you know, gun rights and uh, abortion rights, um, you know, legalization of drugs and then capital punishment. So, I was, you know, I've been fortunate enough to grow up all my life hunting, so I knew everything there was about guns. I counseled uh, 
women from abortion clinics, so I knew a little bit about that. I've been able to travel to different countries, so I knew a lot about the drug laws, but I didn't realize how non-transparent the death penalty was and how they like to keep it from the public. So um, when I started looking into researching it, I found that I needed to actually go to death row to learn anything. Um, thought you could just walk out of death row or sign up for it or something. That's how little I knew about it. And uh, when I called the Attorney General's Office of Ohio, they kind of laughed at me. And then uh, <laughs> they felt sorry for me. So then they explained that the Ohio Revised Code, just like any other state, sets in, in law who can go to an execution and who's allowed to visit and things like that. But since they hadn't had those questions posed to them before, they were going to send me the list of people uh, scheduled to be executed in the next few years and the Ohio Revised Code. And they said, if I could find any loopholes, you know, have at it. Good luck. So they sent me everything. I found some loopholes and uh, visited death row thinking I was only going to do it like once or twice at the most. And it turns out that it was a rabbit hole I went down that I've never really climbed out of since. Yeah, very, very understandable. Um, I've been, I've visited a, one of, a guy on death row twice. It's been a few years, though. I tried getting, well, they don't have death row in West Virginia, but I tried visiting some uh, guy in West Virginia, but they wouldn't let me visit him because I wasn't friends with him before he got, you know, locked up, and he'd been locked up since way before I was born. So there was like no way around it. He said we could probably fight it, but he said it probably would be more trouble and hassle than it was worth. But <clears throat> the one that I visited was uh, Tim Hoffner in uh, Chillicothe. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I've been to Chillicothe, you know, umpteen times. When I first started, Death Row was in Lucasville, Ohio, mm -hmm. uh, where they had uh, Death Row as well as the Death House. But then we had some riots down there. Uh, and after the riots, they went ahead and they, they busted up Death Row and they moved him around. So then they placed him in Mansfield, which was really only about 40 minutes from Sandusky, where I grew up. So I would go to Mansfield quite a bit. And then they had the Supermax over in Youngstown. So I would go over there as well. Um, and then they decided to uh, put it all together back down in Chillicothe. And they still put him to death in Lucasville. So they'll transfer him down there about 36 hours ahead of time. Uh, but everybody is pretty much housed right there in Chillicothe now. Yeah, I remember uh, when, because he's actually trying to think. I know his date got pushed back, but I want to say it was like originally 2020, 2021 when it was first brought up. And I think it's pushed back, I want to say, till next year, the year after. But I know he's kind of torn if it's actually going to happen or not because he's trying to actually get off death row, whether it, you know it happens or not. But I figure, like, I've never experienced an execution or anything, but. I've talked to him for, oh, probably since 2015, 16, maybe. I've talked to him for quite a few years. Like, pretty much uh, when I used to do security and stuff, like, he called me a lot. I was able to talk to him, like, every day for, like, a long time. Like, I don't get to talk to him as much for I work night shifts and stuff. But um, I figure if the whole execution goes through, I kind of see him asking if I would attend for, like, the, you know, friend family aspect type thing because i don't think a lot sure. of his family still 
he talks to his family to an extent, but I don't think he gets along with them very well. Right. So what I have discovered with most of my guys is uh, even the family members that they, they still stay in touch with and, and they, they love dearly, they just don't want them to see them in their last moments like that. Mm-hmm. So um, with the state of Ohio, they're allowed to have three people on their side. And typically it'll be a defense attorney, a clergy, and then somebody like myself. Um and all of them that I've witnessed in Ohio to date have been uh, lethal injection, but they've all been different types of lethal injection. Now, the governor of Ohio right now, Governor DeWine, he has pretty much placed in a moratorium on all the executions, so I'm certain your guy won't be uh, executed anytime uh, in, in the next year or so, uh, not by lethal injection anyways. Uh, I know that the governor was looking towards uh, implementing possibly the, the firing squad mm-hmm. like uh, South Carolina just did a couple months ago. Uh, and so until something like that gets enacted, I think most of the executions will be stayed uh, on Ohio's death row, unless, of course, a different governor gets elected, uh, and then they uh, lift that moratorium. But I think I have maybe four more in Ohio that I've, uh, I've been asked to attend, as well as uh, some in California and uh, Florida. So, yeah, it's um, it's definitely a, a political uh hot topic, uh, depending on whether or not the states have it, and then whether it's more Republican or Democrat. So it's, it's, it's definitely a political issue. I'm trying to think. He might have actually asked me to attend a couple of years ago, if I remember correctly, because I remember like trying to like process it in my mind. Like, you know, I, like I've watched my father pass away and stuff in the hospital, but, you know, it's... Yeah, it, it, it's, it, different. it's different. So people ask me all the time, you know, what it's like, and it, it, it's really difficult to describe because a lot of people have had loved ones in hospice care or something along those lines where they're they're suffering, you know, at their, at their end of life, and uh, you want them to not be in pain anymore. And, you know, more often than not, they are not very coherent. They're not uh, able to communicate or anything like that where uh, somebody on death row is, literally murdered right there in front of you so mm-hmm. I've been you know the uh, at, at times the last person to ever speak to him you know in the death chamber and then you know I get to tap on the shoulder the guards you know walk me around to the uh, the viewing area of the death house and then you know they make the person walk in and climb up on the bed themselves and you know you see them put in the IVs and everything so um, you know here's a here's an individual where you were just talking to you know less than a half hour ago you know sometimes laughing and joking and then you know now they're strapped down to uh, uh to be executed so totally totally different than uh you know watching somebody uh pass away that's uh you know terminally ill yeah uh olivia had a question to ask you sure um like before you started into the death row research and studies did you have a certain opinion about the death penalty and then it possibly change after you got to see it? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I first started, I think I was like everybody else. I, I thought that, you know, these people are on death row, you know, they're, they're locked down 23 hours a day. You pump one hour of sunlight in. Uh, the, the, the 
worst of the worst. They're, they're, you know, blocked away from society. And then, you know, whenever their date with death comes up, they're, they're executed. And once I started um, my research on death row and going into death row, I, I realized how much um, I didn't know about it. They have a lot of movement. They have a lot of freedom. They have a lot of uh, uh, access. So I get, you know, phone calls. I think I got two or three phone calls from death row today that I didn't answer. Uh, I get emails every day. I get letters. You know, I go and see them. There, there's video chats. Um, they can order stuff or you can, they can have stuff order from them on a click list like you would order from, you know, a Myers or a Kroger's or anything like that. Uh they have EVs, they have, you know, uh, tablets or iPads. They, you know, it's, it's just, it's astonishing the, the amount of money that's made on death row and the amount of freedom that's on death row. So, yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> I was really stunned to see uh, what what death row is really like. So it's not anything like you see on TV where, you know, if, if we're going in to film a, a certain individual with a, a say during an interview, you're going to see them behind glass and shackles and chains where if I'm just there to see them and interview them one-on-one, there's no shackles, there's no chains, get to eat with them, drink with them, move around with them, everything like that. So, you know, the public's perception of what death row is compared to the reality of it is, is it's completely different. And yeah, that, that changed, that changed my viewing of it. Uh, you know, I did a whole 180 on that. Um, because I was taken aback. I, I had no idea. Um, and of course, every death row is different. Um, so I go to death row down here in Florida. I might be with 25 guys at one time on death row in a room, but still no shackles, no chains, you're free to move around. You can take pictures, you can eat from the uh, canteen, things like that. Whereas if I go to San Quentin, you're locked in the cage right with them. So uh, you're not you're not going anywhere. So it's uh, Each state has their own different rules and policies and procedures. But when they show them on TV, they're pine glass typically uh, and, and shackled, you know, around the waist and everything. And they, they want that perception of the high security at all times. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I know, um, like when I was in Ohio and stuff, visiting him, yeah, it was I'm trying to think I'm trying to think how many tables is it? It's four or five, I believe, in the room. But I remember they were all filled yeah, up with people. Right. Yeah, the the like the, almost like the stainless steel picnic tables. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of yeah. one guy got a little hateful in there. I forgot what it was over. Uh he was way in the back, like towards where like the TV's at and stuff, like he was at the last table. But I think I wanna say it had to have been his family visit. I wanna say I can't remember if he was the one that had the kids, but Something with food that they didn't have in the vending machine, and he got really, really upset about. It. Like he raised his voice and was like shouting and everything. I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. But they, they, <laughs> they calmed him down though. I think it's something. Whatever his favorite food, I guess, out of there, they didn't have. From my, if I remember correctly. <laughs> You know, it's funny that you mentioned it because I remember I would have inmates writing me uh, and let me know what was in the, the vending machines or the hot vending machines, you know, that you can heat up. And, you know, all of them have their, their favorites, it seems like. So, you know, they'd write me and say, hey, this month they got, uh, you know, frozen pizzas or cheeseburgers or, you know, strawberry pie or whatever like that. Come and see me if you want. And, uh, you know, they, they get upset if uh, if they run out. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I yeah, I knew with him, he, uh, trying to think, um, I knew he had a Pepsi, 
Uh, I think he had a frozen pizza, and I want to say, I want to say a cheeseburger, and I think M and M's. But it was kind of interesting, like watching him eat and stuff, because like you could tell he was more or less like I don't know, like at the table, but he's like kind of like guarding with you know his elbows out, like hunkered down, like he was guarding, like somebody's going to take it or something. Which you know, for us, right. we eat you know out all the time, stuff like that. But he was like, you know, this is actually better than what they serve us, and you know, it's just typical you know vending machine food, so it's not you know the top of the line type of thing. But right, right. He uh, the things that we take for granted sometimes, but then uh, you know, a lot of times they'll. Uh, yeah, if they save up enough uh, money on their JPay and things like that, then they, they, you know, they'll they'll get to order subs and have them brought in or something along those lines when they eat in their cells. Even so, it's um, it, it's fascinating to learn about this whole subculture uh, of death row, which is a prison within a prison. And um, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but how quiet and clean it was compared to like general population. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, they, they treat me with a lot of respect, and, and, and I give them a lot of respect as well because they have nothing to lose. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll let you know that the guards will let anybody on death row, but they determine if you get to go home or not. So, you know, there's always that respect that you give them. Yeah, uh, I knew um, when I first went up there, because I had I'd done both, like, the morning and evening. So I went up there, like, I forgot what it was, like, 6 o'clock in the morning. I think went into maybe seven, but I was there for like eight hours at like morning and evening. And, um, I was talking to a couple, like an older couple up there. I think they were there to see his son, but they, he was in general population and, you know, they were like giving me tips, like what to expect. And I'm like, well, the guy I'm seeing is on death row. He's like, Oh, you know, that's a whole different area. And they, they just like quit <laughs> yeah. talking to me after that. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it really is different, you know, and, and, you know, people that, that haven't experienced death row, especially somewhere like uh, Chillicothe, which is, uh, you know, the oldest prison in the state, and, and looks at, you know, that's a long walk over to death row that mm-hmm. you're walking across the yard on. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's an eerie feeling, you know, when you, you know, the gates slam behind you, and then there you are, you're just sitting on a pod with, uh, with somebody who may have murdered, you know, anywhere from one to, you know, 50 people, who knows, and uh, you're just sitting there eating and drinking with them and, and just, uh, you know, joking or doing whatever. So it's uh, yeah, definitely not like you see on, on TV. Yeah, one of the guys, actually, I think it was the second time I went up there, he, they kind of raised their voice at him because, you know, how they're supposed to walk on the one side where they sit at and they, you know, line them up that way. Well, he had actually walked behind me to get to the table, the next table over, and he wasn't supposed to do that, and somebody said something to him. Like, he didn't, you know, he didn't mean nothing by it, but he just, like, got in behind me real quick and cut up in between the table, and they're like, wait, you're not supposed to do that. It was, like, I don't think he was going to, you know, try to hurt me or anything, but I don't right. think he was thinking. But you never know, you yeah. know? It, it's, it's one of those things where you, if you get complacent, and, you know, if your head's not on the swivel, you, you, you just got to, it's just hard to explain to people that, um, while you might feel safe and secure and know the person in front of you, there's some other ones around there that you may not know. Um, now, I've been up there before where, you know, they can request a special visit uh, just before they're transported, before they're executed. So then I would have the entire pod with uh, the death row inmate, and um, then we're just free to walk around up and down the pod all by ourselves uh, for eight 
hours, and then we were allowed to order food that was delivered to the prison. We ordered like 80 or $90 worth of Italian food and had it delivered and got to sit there and eat and everything else. So it was, um, that caught me by surprise just because of the, the vast amount of freedom that we were allowed. And, and this wasn't, you know, I didn't request anything special or anything like that. This was just because it was his last meal and he invited me to it. So it was, uh, yeah, that was a shock as well. <clears throat> I know there was a gentleman, I don't know, you might have talked to him. He got a, um, he's in Florida death row, I'm trying to think. I want to say right before COVID started, 2019, like May of 2019, I think. Uh, Bob, Bobby Joe Long, did you ever communicate with him? No, I've heard of him. I haven't communicated. So Florida is a little different in the sense that, so you could only be on one inmate's visiting list. Hmm. So like in Ohio, you and I can be on, you know, if you have 120 on death row, you'd be on 120 visitors list. Uh, in Florida, you're only allowed to see one inmate. So then what you have to do is, um, if I'm talking to four or five, six different inmates on death row in Florida, you know, whomever I have chosen to be on their visitation list, you know, I'll let them know when I'm coming down, and then I'll have them send kites to the other guys to let them know, or I'll write them and say, hey, listen, I'm coming down uh, to the row on, say, you know, May 23rd or something like that, you know, let the boys know, and so then they'll schedule their visits all the same day, so then you can stand around and talk to them and, you know, chat with them and interview them all at the same time, even though you're only on one visitor's list. Hmm. I know he, because um, when I first started talking to him, because he's originally from West Virginia, and that's the reason I wrote him. I'm like, hey, you know, he didn't, as far as I know, he didn't do anything in West Virginia. And he says he didn't, but he hated this day with a passion. But he was from uh, Canova. And actually, um, I was surprised because I was reading a book about him like years ago. And they mentioned about him getting pulled over, and what I found was odd is they actually listed his address in the book of where he, well, his driver's license was West Virginia still, and um, I actually found the address, and his mother still lived in the house that was listed in the book, and I was surprised they actually gave that information out, but she's, she might have been, she might be passed away by now, because she was in her 90s back then, but yeah, I, like I had went to a paranormal uh, trip in Kentucky, and when I came back, I was like, well, since I'm, you know, in the area, I'll stop, see if I can find the house. She's actually outside, like, three, three o'clock in the morning, getting a cat. I'm like, oh. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, he, he said that he was trying to get her to move to Florida and stuff, because uh, with, wet, you know, the weather up here, and like I said, she was like 92, 93 at the time, and he's like, you know, she, I think, fell one year, and I had, like, you know, trouble, like, getting around, but I don't know if she ever did move down there, but yeah, when he was, when I first started talking to him, he basically kind of like, you know, they're not going to do nothing to me, like you mentioned earlier, if they get another governor, that could all change, that's what happened to him, I guess another governor a couple years ago came in, and they're like, we're executing people, and like I had sent him an email not too long before he actually, you know, got the lethal injection and he was like nervous as can be because he did not think that he was ever going to be touched because he'd been on death row since, see, like mid 80s, like 84, 85 is when he got arrested. He, like he knew Ted Bundy and all that. And like he was just a cocky man and thought, you know, he was untouchable. Nothing was ever going to happen to him that he was going to die of natural causes on death row. And. Yeah, it changed quickly, and once it changed, he started worrying really bad. 
I just thought that yeah, was really interesting. These, yeah, they get these phantom dates, you know, for many, many years because um, of the appeals, but they always have to give them a date. And uh, then they get so used to those dates being stayed or, you know, moved that when it comes time for the execution, they, most of them, they just don't think it's going to happen. So every one of my guys is pretty much the same way. You know, they're like, yeah, you know what? I don't know if this is really going to happen or not. But then as it gets closer and they put them on the, you know, the 30-day, you know, suicide watch, and then, you know, they start isolating them more and more, then it starts sinking in. So that's when, you know, more guys have reached out to me because, you know, the guards don't tell them a whole lot, and, and other people have never really seen how the process works. So they, they know that I've, I've attended them and I can at least let them know what to expect. Um, so I haven't, myself, I haven't reached out to inmates in ages, but they um, they get my name from other inmates from death rows all over. And uh, so they'll reach out to me and then I'll, I'll see if it's, you know, somebody that I, I want to, you know, either interview or uh, get to know in a uh, way that I can get inside their head. Uh, typically, I make them admit that they're guilty right off the bat in order for me to, to interview them because if they, they claim that they're innocent and, you know, I'm not the person you need to talk to. You need to talk to attorneys and people like that. I'm just here to learn from you and eventually watch you die. So they know that right up front. Um I think there's maybe the only person I really that I communicate with on a regular basis that uh, is still fighting uh, his appeals where he, he claiming his innocence would, would be somebody like Scott Peterson. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, for the most part, all of my guys easily admit. Uh, and in fact, I have uh, maps to uh, four or five different bodies right now. That's one of the things that uh, one of the projects we're working on uh, from two different serial killers. So uh, in both Ohio and Florida, so it's uh, they, uh, they, they, uh, they, they don't want to be forgotten. I've noticed that with some of them. Yeah. They're really like out there and don't want to be forgotten. There's a gentleman I talked to, uh, uh, well, I talked to him off and on, but he had murdered, well, he says he didn't do it, but he said that he had murdered, well, was involved in a girl getting murdered, but they had broke out of jail in Kentucky, him and another guy. They went on a, uh, like a little over two week, roughly spree, like they uh, hijacked a guy in Kentucky, took his truck, tied him to a tree, didn't do nothing, got to West Virginia, killed a girl, uh, Samantha Burns, which... She lives over in the next town from us. So, you know, it's a local, you know, local case. Well, they go down to South Carolina, they kill a lady down there, and they come back to West Virginia, hang out with one of his friends, and then they split ways. One gets arrested in uh, Kentucky. Well, yeah, Kentucky, like he, I think they got him in the Ohio River, actually. He had jumped in the Ohio River from Ashland, and they got him. And then uh, Chad, the one I communicate with, he went back to to Indiana. And where his brother was at, and that's where they got him, which he was in the Alice Donovan, the lady they had murdered in South Carolina. Well, he's gave me, like, uh, I've sent him pictures. He's wrote back on them and, like, printouts of, like, where he says, because Samantha Burns they never found. And the family, you know, this all happened in 2002, so going on 20 years in November. Well, the court actually used that against him 
in the Alice Donovan case, which they're on uh, death row uh, in uh, Indiana, where they're you know the federal charges and stuff. But yeah, he actually yeah. had them. The cops wouldn't listen to him, but he uh, a missing person group down that way actually contacted him, and he led them straight to Alice Donovan's body, like uh, 2009, so seven years later. And he's never really changed his story with Samantha, but they like that same group came up here, and he he says he don't know why she hasn't been found, and a lot of people kind of go back and forth, like, well, is he telling the truth? But I'm like. Like I, I have a feeling that he is to an to an extent. Like they were on drugs and everything, but it's kind of like, why give up one and not the other? You know, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there there are those that want to like be known as the most notorious serial killers, so they'll admit to you know murders that that didn't occur just to give them more credibility. Um, other ones, you kind of feel them out, and it, it does. It, it takes a lot of time and patience to feel them out. And, you know, I can't say with 100% certainty that I can believe any of my guys, but I know which ones I, I think, anyways, um, are more genuine than others. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I've done it long enough uh, over the years where you know, I, I'll go and I'll interview guys and never mention their case you know, for, you know, hours or, or days at a time uh, until they finally say, you know, don't you want to know anything about what's going on? And I'm like, uh, you know, realistically, you're on death row, so it's nothing different than anybody else I've dealt with. And then, then they start opening up more. So I've, I've found that the least amount of questions I ask them, the more they tell me. I could actually, yeah, that's a good approach. I know a lot of the people I, you know, write to and stuff, they don't really open up but I don't really like you said, really ask anything, but eventually they might say, you know, like hint around to like certain things they've done or something. And, you know, I'll kind of feed off that, but it's kind of, yeah, it's interesting how they are. Cause like you said, they, a lot of them think they're innocent or play they're innocent and crap, almost what would you say? Probably 90%, if not more, think they're innocent and say they're innocent. Um, you know, probably so. I just, that's how I've always weeded mine out is, you know, right off the bat, you need to admit to me that you're guilty before I even talk to you. And then, um, if you're willing to admit that you're guilty and you want to talk, then then we'll go from there. So yeah, all of my guys, like I said, with the exception of somebody like Scott Peterson, that they, you know, they, they readily admit that they're guilty and, uh, um, they just they see what they can contribute to my research, my writing, my you know art collection, or whatever you want to call it. Because they just send so much stuff. I mean, I like I said, I have probably a couple thousand pieces of art just laying around. And the reason they send it to me is because they know I don't sell anything. I don't sell them out. I don't sell their letters. I don't sell their signature. I don't give their names out or anything like that. Even when I post the pictures of their art, I don't even put who did it because um, I don't like to glamorize them you know, or glorify them or anything like that. Uh, but they also know I'm not making money off of them. Uh, so that's the reason why they, they just continuously send me more and more stuff. And then they try to outdo each other. You know, I'll get so much art from, you know, uh, 
say one inmate that I'll be like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of this. Why are you sending me this? This other guy sent me this really cool stuff or this stuff here, you know, and then they switch it up. So then I'll get, I'll get stuff sent to me, you know, painted with human blood or semen or whatever, you know, it's just, you never know what to expect. Yeah. Uh, Olivia has a question for you, but I want to make a comment on what you said. Um, the first person I ever wrote, uh, almost nine years ago, like when I wrote her, she's like, basically, what do you want? Cause people, you know, sold her artwork and stuff like that. And right. I was like, you know, I'm just here to communicate. And, um, she has sent me artwork. I've got like a needle that done her tattoos. I've got glasses that she wore. Like I get all this stuff in the mail. Like I said, I don't, I don't sell anything really either. So, and I don't really ask for stuff, but eventually they will be like, Hey, you know, I'll send you this or something like that. It's interesting how that uh, works. Yeah, it, yeah, you, you almost form that connection then because um, I had the only female federal death row inmate. She was executed last year, I think, and uh, I was supposed to be at that execution, but COVID wouldn't allow me. Uh, she's the one that uh, took the mother, killed the mother, and cut the baby out, uh, and then kept the baby, kidnapped it, took it across state lines. So she was the first female federal death row inmate executed in 70 years, the only one that was on uh, federal death row, and she would send me stuff all the time, even though I'd never asked for it. So it, it's just, it's bizarre how they, you know, just, uh, they, they, they gain that trust in their mind of you, and then they'll start sending you more and more. Mm -hmm. What was your question that you had? Um, I kind of have a question that I'm not entirely sure how to word, but, um, I just wanted to say, like, as, like, a self-aware, mentally ill person myself, like, one thing that has not changed, no matter how much therapy or medication I've been on, is, like, suicidal ideation. Like, just those intrusive thoughts of, you know, like, self-harm, things like that, that you have to fight. Now, with death row inmates, do you see that part of them like do some people care do some people not care like they're ready to die or like their mental health deteriorate the closer their date gets so what i have what i have come to see over the years is that uh these inmates on, on death row they can kill anybody at any time except themselves so they may you know, not be spiritual at all, or they may turn to spirituality. They may, um, you know, hate life. They may hate everybody. But the, the one thing that they're afraid of doing is, is killing themselves. Um, so I haven't had any inmates that have ever even attempted suicide or, or anything close to it because they, um, they typically, um, they don't mind a death row. They'd rather be on death row than general population because they get the single cell. It's a lot more quiet. People get along. So, you know, uh, for instance, the example would be if you, uh, you put a child molester on general population, that person is not going to last very long. Or if they do, they have to always sleep with one eye open. On death row, you put a murderer with a child molester that's, you know, murdered, raped the child, everything else. They're fine because everybody is just as guilty on death row, so they don't single them out like they would in general population. Um, also, on death row, they, they if they uh, are battling any 
everything mental illness wise you know they're they're treated for it so they'll get the antidepressants and anxieties um they're treated uh for anything um maintenance wise whether it's blood pressure uh diabetes or anything along those lines so you know the state will do whatever they can to keep them alive in order to execute them okay that's really interesting Hey, Creepy Crawlers, we wanted to take a moment to talk to you about this product we've been trying. Okay, the product is uh, Magic Mind. Um, you know, as the podcast, you know, we're creating content, and it's not easy. You know, it never has been. It takes a lot of time, patience, and energy to do it. It can be really stressful, but I found this little shot that not only gives me that energy, but also helps me keep focused to I'm getting this done in a quicker time, and, you know, it just helps me be more productive, and it has really tremendously helped you know um i don't drink coffee but the drink's not too bad so i just drink it straight out of the uh, little bottle that it comes in it's a two ounce bottle so i just take it straight from that and it really seems to kick in pretty quick but what was your experience with it um well of course you guys know i'm a mom of three it's hard for me to keep up with my kids without heavily relying on caffeine but i have some medical conditions that caffeine affects negatively so i've been trying to cut down my intake and i really have loved taking magic mind to help because it takes away that sugar crash you get because i drink coffee with a lot of cream and sugar and the caffeine effects so i really have been more focused and keeping up with my kids and housework better so i have loved that it also has all natural ingredients such as adaptogens and matcha which i really enjoy the the flavor is mellow and very earthy. It's also paleo-friendly, gluten-free, keto-friendly, BPA-free, and not made around any nuts. If you would like to uh, check out our uh, link to it, it's magicmind.co slash killer. They're having a sale on their uh, website, and you can use our code, KILLER20, to get an additional 20% off. You have, I thought you had another question, sorry. Yeah, that's actually, um, we actually, one of the guys that we just interviewed, he was on uh, the well, Joseph Todd Rizzo, he was on death row for, how long was it, 18, 18 yeah. years, and he just got to general population, but, because we had asked that question to him about, you know, suicide if it's ever, which I don't think, I think that's our third party interview, so it hasn't came out yet, but he had made a good point, though, because uh, we're like, you know, do you think about suicide now, since you've been in prison, he said no. But the reason he said he didn't was because in case that boy's family ever had, uh, you know, questions or his family had questions about stuff. He's like, I want to be here to answer him. And I thought that was really interesting that he that he had said that. That was kind of a good yeah. you know, point of view on things. I have come across a lot of inmates who they um, the reason that they appeal their case so many times is. Not so much because they actually think they're going to win it uh, and get it reversed and overturned, but a lot of times it's their way of controlling the the surviving family members' lives as well. So if you ever notice, by the time they do execute somebody, the family, the majority of the family have already passed away themselves. And for the inmate, at least the, the, the ones that are the true psychopaths and sociopaths, they enjoy controlling that in the sense of they make that family relive it every time they do go for an appeal. So it's just another controlling mechanism for them. 
Um, I know they always say, with your opinion, is Texas like one that's really kind of, I've read a lot of things on it. I've talked to some that were on death row in Texas. It seems like Texas seems to be the quicker state with like them going through. I know, I think I want to say on average 14 years, it takes for their appeal process to run through. And then they like, they're more quicker, you know, to get it all done with and get them out of the way type thing. Yeah, Texas, you know, it, it, a lot of times it's based on the appeal. So obviously the longest one would be in California, the, the largest population of death rows in California. Uh, and they have a moratorium placed on theirs as well right now because of the governor. Uh, it used to be Virginia, when they had the death penalty, there for the longest time, they were the ones that would put them to death quicker than anybody. And then it was like Florida and then Texas. I think Texas still has that... Um, uh, you know the, the the perception of you know if you're put on death row in Texas, you're, you're going to be executed. Um, but uh, you know a lot of other states now seems to be that they're trying to expedite theirs as well. Uh, Oklahoma, you know, uh, uh, South Carolina, uh, Tennessee, places like that. They they uh, for some reason they they seem to want to. Uh, start scheduling their executions more and more. Um, and, and, and I don't know if we are going to ever uh, overcome that or, you know, get away from the death penalty, but, uh, you know, Virginia, they just abolished theirs last year. So, you know, it's one more state that doesn't have it. I know West Virginia doesn't have anything, but, uh, you know, all 50 states um uh, can have it based on the the federal government, you know, based on the crime that's committed. So, you know, I've had I've had inmates in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is the only death house for the federal government, is in Indiana, uh, and it's you know a lot of times that they're sentenced to death uh, from a state that doesn't even have the death penalty, but it was a federal, they happened on federal property, or they committed a federal felony on top of the capital murder. So, um, yeah, it's just it's, it's really it, it, it's different, and uh, again, like I said, a lot of times it's all based on politics. It, it's weird. I like with your book, and then with other books I've read. Yeah, it's weird how like politics really get into, you know, that aspect of everything. I um, I've been listening. Well, I just finished up a podcast called Defense Diaries, and the guy was uh, his dad was a defense attorney for John Wayne Gacy, and. Uh, but he uncovered like some interesting things like, you know, the police had actually planted the receipt in the house and everything. He's like, if all that would have backfired, he said that Gacy would have walked. And he said that, uh, I'm trying to think, one of the gentlemen that I guess worked with Gacy said that there was bodies under a building, like a skating ring or something. Well, he said they found like six bags of bones and they were for humans remains, well, bones. Wow. And he was saying like, kind of like the police and all that and like the like you said the politicians like they don't want to basically be like yeah we screwed up and don't want they like close the case i guess in a way too much and they didn't want anything to else be you know put to his name but if there's you know that it's like i don't know i would see it more being in you know trying to find out who they were you know and not just be like, I oh, will swoop under the rug. Cause I think he said it didn't even make like national news on the paper or anything. Like it was just like pushed to the side. Like they didn't want to hurt nothing on, on their end of the thing saying, Hey, we messed up. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because 
before I ever started down this path, you know, uh, of researching and writing on it, if somebody would have came up to me and said, you know, the you know, state and local or federal governments, you know, they're not interested in in recovering other bodies or anything like that. Yeah, I would have, I would have thought this dude, you know, he's nuts. You know, who wouldn't want to have closure to families and things like that? Well, lo and behold, you know, I get get a couple of serial killers under my belt, and you know, they want to offer me. Um, maps to these bodies so of course you know i i go to the feds you know um the agents and i we get together they devise questions for me anthony solwell was one of them he's one of the first ones i interviewed on uh um i, I was one of the first ones ever interview him anyways uh when he was placed on death row he was the cleveland strangler killed 11 women and kept the bodies in his house and, mm-hmm. and yard net uh, and then there were a couple others so when they uh gave me maps to these bodies and they found out that they were prostitutes, um, you know, the federal agents are like, you know, we just, we don't have the resources for this stuff. You know, if you, if you ever come across them, you know, obviously we'll, we'll take jurisdiction of it when it, when it happens, if it does happen, but we, we're not going to devote our, our resources to it. And then, you know, the, the same chief of police in one of the Ohio towns that I have uh, a couple bodies to, he, he refuses to get involved because he doesn't want to make him look bad that he didn't close out a couple of homicide cases. So, I mean, it, it, it was just it's bizarre how um, the public is shielded from a lot of the, of the the politics that goes on when it comes to, you know, anything to do with death penalty, death row, or solving, you know, unsolved homicides. It, it, I, I still can't comprehend that because regardless of whether they were prostitutes or not, they were still somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, you know, somebody's mother, whatever. Uh, and they're human before they're ever a prostitute. And, uh, yeah, they just, they, they don't want to uh, allocate the resources to it. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually talked to uh, someone, I think she's local to us, but like we, uh, I've talked about like local cases and stuff, like I said, with the Samantha Burns case. And there's another one that's unsolved from 07, but she was mentioning somebody she knew that, you know, I think they were a drug addict, but they just, he disappeared. I think they found his body in like another state. And she's like, you know, how did he get there? And then we started talking about, like I said, the prostitution, all that, like women that are just like, you would think they would care more, especially like most serial killers that do kill them. Like, you know, it's been proven because they always say, you know, nobody cares. So that's why they can, you know, kill 20, 30 of them and nobody really blink an eye to go find them. But like you said, they're human. And that's what we were kind of getting into is like, it don't matter what they were because there's still somebody, you know, that cares for them out sure. there. Right. And it's and just, it's amazing. You know, I was um, talking to Samuel Little for a long time uh, and, and I wasn't really that interested in him at first because he wasn't on death row and I tried to limit my scope to death row. Um, but he reached out to me because his best friend lived in Sandusky, Ohio, and, and I taught in Lorraine, Ohio, and that's where he was born. So he considered us homies and, and reached out to me. And you know, here he killed 89, you know, and those were confirmed. And every single one of them were um, 
drug addicts and prostitutes, and he traveled all over the country and did that simply because he could and very opportunistic in the sense that, you know, you dispose of them like trash and nobody really comes looking for you. And I just found that, you know, hard hard to even fathom, but most of my serial killers, that's, that's how they got away with it. It was blending in and taking victims that wouldn't be missed. Um, so it's just, it's just hard to wrap a, a normal mind around that, that they can, you know, take a human life that easily and then law enforcement or agencies will just, you know, ignore it. Yeah, it's very crazy how all that works. Like, when I like so when I got into this and started learning like things behind the scenes, you're kind of like, what? Like why? Like, like I wish I had the resources to be able to do that. And I've seen other like you said yourself, and I've seen other people do the same thing. They'll be like, hey, I have this. This is what we have. Like they just like it seems too like they just chalk it up. Like maybe like they don't want the killer to be you know get one on them type thing. So they're just kind of like, oh, he's lying about it. We'll just move on. You know, we don't have the resources and kind of just make an excuse on it. Because you said earlier, too, which you never know when you can believe them. But, like, personally, you kind of have, like, a gut feeling whether you can believe them or not. But most people, once they're in prison, they're, like, they're lying. You can't listen to anything they say. But that's not always the case, though. No, not always. And uh, and, and I've I've put a couple of them to the test before. And, um, you know, some of them you could tell were just, you know, trying to... um, make themselves known more. Other ones, like I said, I've done it long enough where the consistency over the years has never changed. So if I've gotten a map from, you know, a specific serial killer, and then I don't mention that again for, say, a couple years, and then I'll say to him, you know what, you know, I, I remember you drew me a map before, uh, and you're pretty good at art. Why don't you, why don't you paint me that map and make it something that I can frame to make it look even better? And, you know, and this is years later, and then he'll paint it, and it's the exact same, every single detail is exactly the same. And you just, you don't make that up. Um, because, you know, the truth is never, hard to remember. It's the lies that are hard to remember. And when they're that consistent over that lengthy period of time, then that, that tells me it's it's pretty valid that what they're telling me is true. So it's um it's just a shame that there's that many out there that, that go unsolved. Yeah, and it could be like you said, easily like a lot of them could be connected, which I always found interesting. I know there's some documentaries though too with like truck drivers where they'll like you know, pick somebody up and, you know, take them across yes. state or county lines. But I know they said back in the old days, they, uh, you know, different law enforcements, they didn't talk to each other if they if weren't in their jurisdiction or they didn't really connect things. But it seems like it's gotten better. But then I also hear things now that it's sometimes it's still the same where they do not you know, communicate between each other when it's got similar cases. And I know you said there's a lot of truck drivers out there that's like, Still doing it because I knew, uh, I'm trying to think what his name is, but he just got arrested within got how many years? And he's like, you know, there's more of them. And I think there was like, they're trying to say there's like a network between them where they'll like pass them off type thing. And then the last one to have them just kills them, just dumps them wherever they're, you know, traveling to. 
Yeah, I've, I've gotten a, a few serial killers that have, you know, used like the I-75 corridor where, you know, you take it from, you know, say, you know, Ohio all the way down to Florida, straight line, and, you know, you never know who you're going to pick up and where. Um, and, and it is true, you know, years ago, it was a lot easier because of the fact that there weren't as many cameras or weren't as many uh ways to, you know, um, identify bodies, DNA-wise, things like that. So, um, but but I'm certain that there's a, a, a good number of killers still going free out there as well. I, I know I've always seen, like, some say a couple hundred, some say thousands. Like, I know... With yeah, you know, it's hard. It, it, it really, it, I, I wouldn't even know how to put a number on it, to be honest with you, because, you know, the, the, the good ones that are good at what they do, they just blend in, and they don't talk about it. That's, you know, um, very... I've never really come across anybody that just wanted to get caught. Um, yeah, and I know they said, like, Dennis Rader, and I did talk to him for quite some time, the BTK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, he wasn't even on death row, but I did you know, speak to him quite some time. And um, he he wanted to torment the police, but he definitely didn't want to get caught. And every serial killer I've talked to said the same thing. Now, I, I'd still be doing it to this day, but, you know, it's just, I got caught. Uh, speaking with uh, Dennis Ray, I talked to him for a little bit as well. Um, do you think, like, if he hadn't have, uh, you know, started, taunting the police again with letters and you know there's little boxes and stuff he had what like cereal boxes he planted do you think he would uh still be out there if he hadn't you know yeah. got all that yeah i really do i think uh you know that was his narcissistic uh demeanor that just got him you know hemmed up to the point where they would catch him because you know he was he of course he was a little different than than most of the serial killers because he would go dormant for a while and, and be able to control it, but then you know acting out his own sexual fantasies and that it would would start to to conjure up again where he'd you know get that um, you know desire to do more and more and then I think for him the pleasure was uh, eventually trying to outsmart law enforcement and try to be you know smarter than everybody else and, and it backfired on him. So, but um, a very, very strange individual, very OCD. You know, every time he would write me, he would weigh the letters and, you know, put the, the weight of each envelope on in the inside and, and initial it and count every page and initial it. Mm. He was just, he was different. Yeah. Uh, trying to think. He had um, showed me, like, how he wanted letters written and stuff. Like, he wanted me to be, be like, you know, this paragraph put A to the side, the next paragraph put B to it, so I can... Very controlling. Yeah. He wanted to be in control, but he wanted to have code names, you know, for myself and for him, and um, put me in what it was called, what he called carbon freeze, because I referred to him as BTK somewhere down the line or something, and uh, then he got mad at me and put me in carbon freeze, because he was a huge, like, Star Wars and Batman uh, fanatic, so... Uh, and at that time, I'm like, you know, I, you really have nothing to offer me because you're not on death row, and my, my scope is pretty much limited to death row. So, um, but every now and then, you know, I'll get um, people that reach out. I just got a letter two weeks ago from Gary Ridgway, and I've never written him in my life. And, uh, you know, of course, he, he's a pretty well-known serial killer out in Washington. Mm-hmm. A 
again, not on death row, though, but, um, you know, I guess I would be interested in interviewing him if he wants to, and uh, he reached out to me, so, um, you know, I'll see where that goes, but, um, yeah, it, it, some of these guys are just, they, they crave attention. Yeah, and you don't really hear, like, Gary Ridgway's well-known, but you don't really hear about him a whole lot anymore, like, you know, compared to when he got arrested. One uh, serial killer I found I found so amusing, and, uh, crap, the goal, well, they, they call him the original Night Stalker, uh, what, Joseph D'Angelo or whatever. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, he used to be a police officer. Yeah, I found his, like, that whole case, I remember reading a book years ago, and I'm like, it was so fascinating, like, all the stuff he'd done, like, they said he called, like, the victims, like, years later, and it's weird yeah. how they got him, and I know they said they are going to do that for, like, the Zodiac Killer, they'd done, like, the, what, the Ancestry thing, and was able to pin it down, like, somehow through that way. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that was fascinating too, that they could, you know, do that through, you know, the, the family's DNA, uh, without collecting their samples. And, uh, you know, science and technology nowadays, it, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And, uh, um, I think a lot of the serial killers or, or just anybody, you know, rapists or killers out there that have not gotten caught or hemmed up or, with certain ones, I think they're probably all concerned at some point now that it's going to come back to bite them. So, yeah, but he, he was um, he was different. I never spoke to him. Um, again, he was never placed on death row, so uh, but I did find his his tactics very interesting that he would call the victim, you know, survivors back up and, and taunt them and everything else. I mean, he was, he was pretty gutsy. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was. Um, one thing with the death penalty, like, are you for or against it? So I never really answer that question because I try to stay completely unbiased. The, the whole um, idea of me writing, uh, researching and writing was to let people come to their own opinion, but I wanted them to be educated enough to formulate an opinion because, you know, a lot of times you'll talk to somebody and they're like, oh, my God, I'll, you know, let me pull the trigger or flip the switch or, or do the injection, you know, I'm all for it or, or it's just the opposite. I'm, I'm totally against it, but nobody can ever really say why. So when I started this and I wrote the book, it was, you know, from an unbiased, purely, um, yeah, educational aspect of my firsthand knowledge of it. Um, so, you know, I've always felt that my my opinion one way or the other is irrelevant. I just want people that if they choose that they are for it or against it, I want them to to at least have a basis for their their reasoning behind it. That's all. Yeah, I get like that's kinda of where I'm at. Like I'm like in the middle between like some cases I'm like, Yeah, and then some cases I'm like, no, because like with Joseph that we had talked to and stuff, like I said, where he got the death penalty, like so he's not on it anymore. But just like, which I know like Ted Bundy and stuff kind of changed that around a little bit because a lot of people are like, oh, they're a serial killer. You know, they must be terrifying looking. But like, listen to him talk, like even about his murder and stuff. It's like, if he wasn't, you know, in prison for murder, he would actually, you'd talk to him on the street and you would never know, you know, nothing. Like he was a real intelligent guy. And like I said, that's, I think Ted Bundy kind of opened people's eyes on that, that, you know, people that do things like this are normal like anybody else and you know everything yeah, that's, yeah 
that's, that's why I try to explain to people because they always ask me, you know, what what these guys are like and, and you know, over all the years of, of studying them and, you know, getting inside the, the criminal mind and the psychology of it and everything else, the only thing I can come up with is that the, the most common denominator is that they're dangerously normal, which means they could be your next door neighbor, they could be your coworker, they could be your classmate, they could be whatever, and that's what makes them so dangerous is because they blend in. So, you know, the, the, the Bundys and the Geishis and, and people like that, they, they have a normal everyday life, sometimes families, you know, Dennis Rader, uh, Gary Ridgway, things like that, people like that. They, they, they have that ability to blend in, which is why they're so dangerous and why they get away with it for so long. And speaking of the ones on death row, uh, I've, like a few of them I've talked to and some of them's kind of answered it. And I don't know to really believe them because some other ones that I've talked to, they're like, it never goes away. Do you feel that the urge to kill for them, do you think they ever go away when they get, which I know on death row, because I know one guy I talked to, he's not on death row, but he said being in prison, you're kind of like, there's no targets there, which in sense there is targets, but he's also in his 60s, so probably younger guys he's in there with, and it's probably somebody, you know, that if he attempted, it's not going to be, you know, an easy task for him. But do you think the urge, though, for them go away? So I think it depends on the type of, uh, of killer that they were. So if it was uh, a, a, the type of serial killer or, you know, a mass killer that, that really um, heightened it with the sexuality aspect of it. So, you know, some of my guys are, are um, necrophiliacs. So they like to have sex with the bodies after they're dead and things like that. So, you know, they progressively get worse and worse, like, you know, Dennis Rader did and, and a few of the others. Those are the ones that the urges never go away because that's what they uh, fantasize about. Um, other ones, yeah, it just depends on, you know, why they were killing. You know, if it was, you know, somebody like... Um, uh, who just like to uh, rape, you know, prostitutes and, and not pay for it, but then they like to kill them so they didn't have to worry about it anymore and get rid of the body. It, it was more about the control aspect of, of, you know, grabbing them, picking them up, controlling them, and then disposing of them. So once they're on death row with all guys, then, then they don't really think about it as much. Which I've noticed a few of them too. They kind of, it seems like they kind of put that urge into like something else, which it could be like, I know I see a lot of your pictures of like the artwork and stuff you get. Like, it seems like they kind of put all that energy into painting or doing other things that I guess maybe help keep their mind, mind off of it maybe, which it's probably nothing, you know, like, like what they got from that. Yeah, so a lot of them, what they do the art for is so they can sell it, you know, because people out there, there's a lot of money on death row. Um, so people from, you know, Europe and, and Canada and Mexico, places like that, that, that do not have the death penalty, they, they, they find it fascinating. And um, so they'll, they'll start, you know, pen paling these guys. And, you know, next thing you know, they're asking them for their artwork. And then the artwork, you know, they'll, they'll, make deals with them like okay i'll send you x amount of paintings you sell them for 150 200 bucks or whatever like that and then you split it with me you know 70 30 60 40 whatever and then they keep them in business that way 
So that's how a lot of these murderabilia sites out there and SerialKiller.com, that's how they stay in business. Is it's they're purchasing the art to resell it. Mm. Uh, before we wrap this up, uh, I have one another question for you. Um, like for me personally, like I have children. I know you have kids that are older. Mine are well, ours yes. are still young. But like, it seems like the child killers, you know, serial killers, like child rapists and all that. Like, they seem to. I don't know. Those cases get to me more. What kind of cases get to you the most out of all of them? Uh, honestly, none of them. I, I, I none of them. None of them bother me. And it it sounds horrible. It sounds almost like I'm desensitized. But uh, you know, I just consider them subjects, research subjects. Mm-hmm. So when I'm sitting across from the table from them and eating with them and drinking with them, I don't vision them as, you know, this, you know, monster that's, you know, raped and killed kids and women and everything else. Um, I just, I'm there to learn from them um, and try to figure them out um, as far as the psychology goes with, you know, the criminal thinking, the criminal mind. Um, so, yeah, I, I can honestly say none of them, there's nothing that I walk out of on death row and say, you know, God, I don't know how I compose myself listening to that. I just kind of like tune it out. And, and I think it's because I've done it for so many years that, um, you know, I don't take anything personal and, and it, it just, um, but don't get me wrong, there's been times where I thought, you know, if that person ever did that to any of my family members, they would never see death row because I'd take care of it myself. Mm-hmm. That's an, it's an interesting way to look at it. Like I said, before we wrap this up, is there anything you want to you wanna add? Um, no, you know, I just hope that the, the people that... Uh, are are interested in this if you know they they do pick up the book it, it is called you know watch me die last words from death row that it's you know based on um you know first hand experience of of the death penalty and the death process uh, mostly in the state of Ohio but um you know it, it branches out a little bit from there um and you can get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble or whatever like that um but I hope that they, when they do read it, that they, they keep an open mind uh, and, and formulate a, an educated opinion on their own after they read it. Yeah, that's one thing I've noticed a lot of, well, depends on the way you look at it. A lot of people, like around here, we live like in a small town, so a lot of closed-minded people. But it's always good to have an open mind on things. Um, like I said, before we go, I just want to say, you know, I look forward to uh, your projects. I've seen the, uh, where you're filming and all that. And like you mentioned earlier about filming, do you know like any time when that might come, would it be like later this year or is it going to be like a long project? Um, you know, we're still in negotiations right now with um, the production company out of uh, L.A. and uh, my producer is out of, and director is out of New York City. So we're in constant contact even today. Um, so we're trying to uh, finalize how many series, you know, episodes that they want to do. And uh, um, so it's probably going to be a little while yet because of the, the vast amount of uh, work that needs to be done on locating some of the bodies and uh, uh, interviewing the guys. So um, yeah, it, it, it won't be any time real soon, but we'll be working on it for um, quite some time. Probably, I would say sometime next year or so. Okay, like I look forward to watching that. And if you are you working on any other books or anything? 
Yeah, so I'm working on um, one called Dinner with the Devil, and that's uh, it's comprised of some of the worst of the worst that I've sat down and and eaten with and drank with over the years uh, on death row, and and the number of victims and everything from uh, you know some of them were like. I think Charles Ng may have killed 25, and he's never really been interviewed before, and, and wants me to. So, um, so I just picked out some of the worst of the worst, and I'm and I'm writing on those. But mm. uh, right now, focusing more on the filming aspect and uh, diving into that to see if we can bring some closure to some families as well. Yeah, it'd be awesome if you do. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Like, I could probably talk to you probably the rest of the night if I, if we were able to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I certainly appreciate it. It's an honor to be on here. And, uh, you know, you got my contact information on Instagram and Facebook and that, so tell everybody that listens to it, you know, if they want to reach out and ask me any questions, they can instant message me or follow me on there, and I'd be more than happy to answer any other questions as well. All right. Uh, thank you. Like I said, thank you for being on, and I will uh, – this probably won't drop until can't remember. I'll have to look at my schedule. It'll be like probably next month. I think you're the first episode of June to come out, but I'll get all of it situated and get it out there. Sounds good. And then like I said, if you send me the link or whatever like that, I'll make sure my publisher that gets it and they'll put it out there as well and hopefully get you a lot more subscribers. All right. Thank you. All right. But uh, have a good night good. and uh, we'll talk to you thank later. You. Take care now. All right. Bye. Okay, that was our uh, interview with uh, Dr. Bill Kimberlin. Um, if you haven't picked up his book, like I said, Watch Me Die, that is a really good book. I read it at work. Uh, it's very fascinating. Like I said, Olivia is working on it. But what did that uh, – thought he made a lot of interesting points. Like I, said, I, like I said, I could have talked to him all night. But I think I agree with how he said that he tries not to answer that question and – Try like he doesn't want to sound desensitized, but he tries to keep it at like a professional level where he's like studying them so that way he's not like, yeah. you know, because you don't want to get too emotionally involved in something like that. Yeah, kind of like a thing like you take the information in, you just don't yeah. emotionally let it get to you. But I hope you all enjoy, you know, this uh, episode. Um, do you have anything to add before we leave? No. Are you enjoying the book so far? Yeah, <laughs> I haven't gotten very far, but also three kids and. You know, everything going on, it's hard for me to actually get to sit down and take time to read. That's why I read at work on my lunch break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, sometimes I'll read in the morning. Like I said, if you guys, you know, can pick it up, watch me die. Like he said, follow him on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, like I said, as you tell you, he's a real nice guy, really good to talk with. And I think, um, you know, hopefully, I think his documentary or series that he's doing with the you know, hopefully that gets out there and, you know, he can help, you know, bring some people home. Cause that's what a lot of things, you know, are about bringing, you know, yeah. closure to families and all that. And, you know, I like, like you said, his, you know, look at it. I like how he does that. Like he's not, you know, for or against it, but he just puts his research and what he studies out there to let you decide, you know, what you, you know, think on it. But uh, we thank you for tuning in. Like I said, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you on the next one.